0: Well, good morning, church. How are you guys? Good, good, good. Man, uh, you know, incredible just uh, taking some time to, uh, together as a single community uh, to step into and declare this reality that we got to declare through this song is, is just something to kind of just say, God, uh, I, I am here trusting That you, because you are with us, that whatever it is we find ourselves in, that it is good and right and enough that you are with us because you are enough. I know we say those sentences a lot, but the, the story of the Bible, as God unfolds his incredible story for us from Genesis to Revelation, is this constant declaration from God to say, there, there is something that you seem to need or want or you're stuck in or you're, you're scared about or something going on. But, but what, you, what you keep missing is because I am here, you're okay. Not because I'm gonna make something okay, but just because I'm here. Remember when Jesus was in the boat and the storm was going on and the disciples was like, make it stop, make it stop. And he's like, wow, you guys seem super panicked about a big old storm because you're forgetting that I'm right here in the boat. So as long as I'm here, it doesn't matter how big that thing gets, we're safe. We're not safe because things around us are safe. We're safe because of who we're with. This is the story of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And what a beautiful thing it is just to stop in some regularity, come together and say, oh yeah, Renault, remind yourself of this truth so that you would be, clear on the fact that what makes you safe is who you're with, not what's going on in you or around you. So uh, we just got back from vacation, Uh, my wife and myself and several of our kids. uh, Each summer we take a a little while and we head out on vacation. And uh, over the years, uh, it has seemed that God at each vacation Uh, has, in his rhythm with me, in his way with me, just used the vacation space to profoundly show me something that I do not yet know. So I've kind of come to expect at this point that as I roll out on vacation, I'm like, all right, God, You got something crazy to show me that not every time, but in multiple occasions, usually includes a near-death experience of one of my family members or multiple together. (laughs) Thankfully, not every time. So I am grateful for that. But that God has a way of just using that space uniquely to, to just show me something that I then get to share with us so that we get to see that together. So it is for me, it is for us, it is from him. And so as we headed out on vacation this year, uh, I headed out uh, with that same expectation in mind. God, I, I wonder what it is, what great and unsearchable thing I do not yet know that you are going to show me through something. It turns out on this particular vacation, that God was already showing me some things in preparation for what he would continue to evolve on the vacation. So unlike other vacations, instead of just showing me something on vacation, he kind of began the journey earlier and then on vacation kept expanding it so that I could see. But I didn't know that. The stuff happening before vacation, I I didn't know that it was gonna be tied to what he did. And so as we travel through, through what God has been uh, sort of uh, unfolding and bringing clarity to for me, uh, we really have to start before I left. So uh, a couple of uh, weeks before we left on vacation, Um, I was uh, out in our gardens uh, kind of uh, watching and examining our fruit trees. So we have a number of fruit trees. um, And my favorite fruit tree is our mango tree. We planted it five years ago. It was little. uh, And I kind of cared for the tree as it grew. Now it's not little anymore. It's very, very big. And uh, last year, was the first year that the mango tree bore mangoes. Like it takes usually three to four years for a mango tree from its infancy to bear mangoes. And those mangoes, I'm not even kidding. I'm an exaggerator. This is not an exaggeration. Okay. Uh, They were the best mangoes I have ever eaten in my entire life. Not just because they were on the tree that I planted, but because they were actually the best mangoes ever. Giant, juicy, unbelievable mangoes. So I was super excited about this year and the mangoes coming to bear uh, and more mangoes than last year, because that's how it works. And so Uh, in early part of this year, you guys may remember we had a freeze that came through like we sometimes do, but the mango tree is super giant now. So you can't cover that thing. And so the freeze did some damage to the mango tree, not a ton, got a little brown on the, on the outside. And so after the freeze was done and it browned, I cut away some of the brown and everything seemed wonderful. And it started uh, shooting out new leaves. And I'm like, yay, the mango tree is going to make mangoes. Um, And, and last year, those first set of mangoes came out right while we were on vacation they started ripening so i had to wait till i was back so this year i was kind of hopeful that they would arrive before vacation so i could take some of them with me and so at a certain point when this tree started popping mangoes all over the place i was very excited until some of those mangoes dropped off the tree when they were little like they're not ripe they're not ready you can't eat them they're useless and the tree's like dropping them on the ground and i'm like oh Like, you've got to hold the mangoes until they're ready. That was dropped on the ground. So I made the assumption that because of the freeze, that the freeze affected the tree negatively and that this year was going to be a tough year. Whenever something is going wrong around us, we usually want to push the blame outward to something other than ourselves. And that's always the easiest thing. And so I'm like, the freeze? No, I'm not at the freeze. But my wife... Um, uh, we are connected to this farm in Howie in the Hills called the Natural Farm. And they do these classes for gardening and other things. And there was a fruit tree class. So she said, do you want to go to the fruit tree class? And I'm like, I don't know. I suppose I should because I I do need to know what's going on with the fruit trees. So I went to this fruit tree class. And um, at the fruit tree class, uh, I found out something quite disturbing. So it turns out when you care for fruit trees, There's like 50 things you have to do throughout the year in a very specific sequence if you want those trees to be healthy and and bear great fruit. Like, and it's like, I just got to say, like, it is a, everything you have to do is boring. It's mundane. It's, it's sequenced. It's hard work. It's it's I mean, I was like, plant the tree, water the tree. Once a year, throw some fertilizer on the tree. Fruit. Four years, I did that fruit. And now this guy up here is like, yeah, I mean, it's great when you have a sapling tree and you're growing it, but when it gets to be a bigger tree, it needs a whole lot more to be able to bear its fruit. And so if you're not doing all these things, it ain't going to happen. So I'm like, oh my goodness, that's a lot of just things to keep up with and do. And, and, and then a whole year and not like this year, how many years? every year you want the mangoes you got to do the work and i'm like oh that just feels like wow so i go to him after and i'm like hey just out of curiosity that wow thank you for the class i'll try to you know do the things um but this year because of that dumb freeze my mango my tree dropped all its mangoes and he's like yeah no not the freeze like what do you mean he's like well here's how a mango tree works or any fruit tree it knows how much nutrients it has and what it is capable of producing to the fruit. So when the fruit all appears, it's gonna det- determine I don't have enough in me to, to ripen all these fruits. So it'll just drop whatever it can't ripen and only hold what it's capable of ripening. You know how many mangoes are on my tree right now? One! I'm not kidding. One mango. I guard it with my life. I'm like, it's gonna ripen. I'm like, beg the tree, hold the mango. I just want one. It's like God was gracious enough to me, like, you totally didn't do the work, but I'm going to give you one. <laughs> the tree will hold. So my tree was basically like, this is how well you've cared for me. I am capable as a giant tree to produce one mango. So here I'm in this space and I'm like, wow. It just, it's gonna take a lot of just ongoing, tedious, mundane work to really have this tree and my other trees become uh, healthy. So I'm driving home from this fruit tree class and I'm just processing this information and, and God quietly speaks to my, to my heart as we're driving back. Uh, somebody that I knew had been reading this book And the title of the book, I don't know much about the book, but the title of the book came to mind. It was like, God was like, I'm going to give you a sentence to chew on since we just had a fruit tree class. And here was the sentence. He's like, hey, you you should go and explore this. A long obedience in the same direction. There's a book that Eugene Peterson wrote called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And God's like, I'm, I'm beginning to show you something, and it's going to be around this sentence. Now, that sentence, some of you are like, oh, it sounds wonderful. I'm an entrepreneur. Every word in that sentence is a nightmare to me, except for A. The first letter, la- A. I'm like, good, we're, we're good. And then long. Oh, gosh, no. A long. And then obedience. Oh, goodness gracious. In the same direction. Boring. I mean, no, no dynamic, no change, no wonder, just long obedience, same direction. I'm like, it's a nightmare. And God's like, oh, we gonna talk. So he just leaves me with that. So um, then I am... Uh, talking to my daughter in Dallas, Texas, because she graduated university uh, from Liberty and decided she was going to move out to Dallas, Texas to, you know, uh, spread her wings, uh, be an adult, do all of that. Uh, and so she's calling me from Dallas, that God forsaken city and that God forsaken state that uh, I hate with all of my soul. No, I don't actually. I, I, Dallas is great and Texas is great, but Hadley shouldn't have moved away. Um, and so... <laughs> Anyway, so she, she moved away. So she gets on the phone with me and we're, we're talking about sort of her journey there. And before we go on vacation, she calls and we're chatting and she's like, dad, uh, what's wrong with me? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, one, like I've been here like a number of months now and I, I, I haven't made like really, really good friends. I mean, I've met a lot of people they have friends, but really good friends, like something's wrong with me. And I'm like, honey, Like making friends takes years, like years. There's nothing wrong with you. You just got months under your belt. You don't get best friends in like four and a half months. And then she's like, okay. And this is like, "And, and, and there's this other thing that I'm really struggling with. I'm like, what is that? And she goes, well, I wake up in the morning and then I go to work. And then when work is over, like I come back to the apartment where my roommate is and then, she comes from back from work and then we're like, what should we do? And then we like watch something and then we make dinner and then we kind of go to bed and then we wake up in the morning and we go to work and she's like, I, I don't know, like, what do I do? And I'm like, welcome, <laughs> welcome. You have arrived in adult life. So when I first say that, like you, you're just, you like me, you're like, oh no, like you said it out loud. We get the adventure until we're like 19 and then the rest of our life is just a cycle of boredom moving in and out of the workplace and dinner. That's kind of what, and for a moment it felt like that to me, I was almost like, wow, that was a clear articulation of the horror of life, you know? But then as we're talking it through, God began to show me something I I had never really put into words before. As we're talking, you know, we're starting to talk about like, what about adventure? And what about like, you know, you, you know the YouTube videos of the folks, like they're on a sailboat around the world. They're like 23 and 24 with their toddler. They got a spear gun and they're like, look, I spear gunned a wonderful fish to grill on the beach fresh from our trip through the Caribbean that we're spending the next four years is doing. And you're like, I'm going to work. Like, where did I go wrong? I want that life. And so we're talking through this. And I said to Hadley, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Like if you begin to process, once you get to to my age, or even those of you that are past your late forties and fifties into the later years, and you start looking back, you start realizing, don't you, that, that everything in life, that makes life matter, the deep things, the big things, relationships and friendships and, 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 and deep connections with other people, what we call history. The, the photo albums you page through, they, they don't primarily happen on sailboats in the Caribbean. They happen in the everyday, ordinary, in-between spaces where we have to do life together, uh, where there's not much to do other than be together. And there we forge the deep friendships and relationships and the people that cry with us and laugh with us and neighbor with us. They don't typically uh, develop on quick adventures. They develop in the regular, ordinary, mundane spaces. And I say to Hadley, you will find young lady that when you get older, the greatest gift of your life is not the sailboat adventures, though they are wonderful and you should have some of them, but the greatest gift of your life is the history that will emerge through the raw, long, mundane journey in between adventures. That is where life is waiting to be discovered. And we Americans, Westerners have been duped by the the spaces of adventure to say real life is in the adventure, but those people are gonna wake up one day with no history and they're gonna suddenly realize, wow, the the boat was fun, but where are my history? And so God, I didn't know this, was already like setting me up. It's like, okay, we've got the fodder for the vacation. And so then I ordered the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote it and, and I'm starting to read it before we go on vacation. So I got those two pieces and chapter one, right in chapter one, uh, Eugene Peterson lays out a premise about our journey with Jesus and how we function in it. And, and I read this before we leave on vacation. And, and this is what he says uh, in, in chapter one. He says, religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. Oh, I'm almost like, no, don't read on. It's too convicting. I can't do it. Oh no, we're going on. Here it goes. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred uh, diversion plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, and conferences. We go to see the new personality, to hear the new truth, to get the new experience, and so somehow to expand our otherwise humdrum lives. This is the religious experience. And so he lays that out, and I'm like, wow, The tourist mindset, is that that where we function? Looking for the next religious experience in a church service or a rally or a podcast or a speaker that will somehow pull us from the ordinary mundane Monday through Saturday that we have to endure to get to the next wonderful encounter with God. Is that how we function? And then I get in the car and we drive to Branson, Missouri to family camp. And the drive to Branson, Missouri in family camp is a long drive. And we drive it because we have eight kids. And I'm not putting eight kids on an airplane because then I, I will not have mortgage payments to be able to make. And so we're like, we're going we're gonna to drive. Now, with fuel prices, it's a close call. But still, And uh, so we're going to get in the car. But this time we only have two kids going with us to camp. And so I'm like, oh, we could fly. But we've already planned the trip, so we're driving. So we get in the car and we roll. And it's a two-day trip to Branson. And, you know, Brooke rests in the car next to me, uh, sleeps in the car next to me uh, while we drive. And then the kids get on their devices and and they do what they do on their devices in the car as we drive. And I play the video game. There's a car in front of me. Get around it. And so so we're moving down the road. And the point, the point is to get to family camp because that's where the fun's at. This journey from Orlando to Branson is not the point. That is a necessary consequence for the joy we want to experience. And so you kind of look at the rules that have been put in place to keep us all safe. And you ask yourself, how far can these rules be navigated before you will experience the punitive realities that come with them? So your speed limits, you know, how far can you go? Because every mile you can go a little faster is another minute. You don't have to be on the stupid road and you can be in Branson. Branson, Missouri. So I'm driving to, no, I didn't get a ticket. Don't worry. You're like, oh, you got a ticket. I did not. And so we drive all the way to Branson. We get to Branson. We arrive at family camp. And every bit of the experience is what you think it would be. Like, oh, the journey has been endured. The trip is behind us. We have arrived. And God just quietly whispers, this, this experience is what has translated into the journey with me. And it is not my way. It is not my way. This get through the long ride so you can arrive at the big thing so you can feel better. My rhythm, my way is different. It's interesting, even as I was thinking about uh, that guy that was teaching on the fruit trees and then I was thinking about the guy that was the beekeeper that taught me how to do bees. Uh, Both of them essentially said the same thing at some point in their teaching and their mentorship. Is that like the true beauty of the bees, the true beauty of the fruit trees is when you stop focusing on a means to get fruit or a means to get honey, but you fall in love with the bees and caring for them well and seeing them thrive. You fall in love with the tree, caring for it well and seeing it thrive. Then the fruit becomes a natural consequence of the love and care and journey of caring for something that is living and wonderful and beautiful. It's like he's saying, The true beauty rests in the journey, not in the destination. We say these things, they're on posters, and we're like, oh yeah, that's it. But we don't live that way. We don't live that way. So Eugene Peterson writes on in this book, in that chapter, right after he kind of says, here's the tourist mindset that we're all living with as we try to follow Jesus like tourists. Find him in the next big and exciting moment. Transform me. Oh, endure the long journey to the next exciting moment. Transform me. So that's how we function. But this is actually what the rhythms of God produces in how he created everything and how he speaks in his word. So Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, uh, we, uh, as a Western culture, everyone is in a hurry. The persons whom I lead in worship, he's a pastor, among whom I c- counsel, visit, pray, preach, and teach, want shortcuts. They want shortcuts because they are impatient for results. I want to be mature. I, I want to have intimacy with Jesus. I, I want to be disciple. What's the fastest way to do it? What book can you give me real quick? What podcast? How do I get there? We all in a hurry, all want shortcuts. He says this, we, we are impatient for results. We live the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points, but the Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. And then he writes this. He, he quotes Frederick Nietzsche, who was, by the way, an atheist philosopher who hated Christianity, right? So we're about to quote him. like, <laughs> And so this quote is actually him recognizing in the 1800s when he lived, if Christianity were real, this is what it would look like, but this isn't what it looks like, so it can't be real. You, you with me so far? He's trying to show us that we are not real by saying, this is what it would look like if it was real. So Frederick Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher, who saw this area of spiritual truth at least with great clarity. In other words, he's saying he saw no great clarity, but this he got right. Listen to this. This is his quote, "Frederick Nietzsche. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, thereby resulting and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. He recognized that if you all who follow Jesus were serious about what you say you believed, then the true life that waits for you to realize the true beauty in life would be found in the journey of the long obedience with the one whom you say you believe in. But you all behave like tourists, so it can't be true. That's, that's what Nietzsche, so what Eugene Peterson says "Is look, the atheist philosopher saw this in a way we often miss it. So I enter onto the vacation and we're on vacation there. And we go caving while we're on vacation um, because it was one of the little things. Nobody got lost or died. So if you're like, oh, here it comes, the near death experience, tragically not. Um, So we just went caving. But uh, something happened in the cave that was profound. That was the next layer in God just quietly saying, I've got something I wanna show you that I wanna embed in your heart so that the journey forward transforms. So we're in this cave and we get into this big giant section of the cave and the tour guide says, okay, everybody sit quietly and everybody turn your flashlights off. If you've gone caving, you've done this. It's a cave thing to do, right? You get in this place and you turn the lights off and there's no light in a cave. So when you turn the lights off, you can stare, like just stare. Like come on, cuz you know how anytime in the dark, if you stare long enough, you start seeing cuz there's always light and your eyes are just amazing the way God designed them and they they extract any bit of light. They're like, "Oh, oh, there's the wall." But when you're in a cave, they do that. And there's just none. There's none. So you can literally put your hand in and you start thinking you see your hand. But then you move it and your hand stays. And you're like, oh, my brain's taken over. We can't see. Make it up. Make it up. So it's pitch black. Now, I'm afraid of the dark. Just FYI, you're like, what? Really? Yep, it's dark. Not not a happy place for me. Um, So I don't love the dark. But sitting in this cave, in this dark place where you can't see anything, the point of doing that in the cave is because that moment is a gift to you. It is the most serene, beautiful and quiet, not a sound, not anything distracting you, just pure stillness. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, wow, what an extraordinary experience. And God whispers to me, sometimes the thing we think is the burden, the, the, the weight, the fear, the difficulty is actually the gift, See, what I think of as dark. I'm like, oh, dark. It's uh, uh, it's bad. It's like sometimes it's actually the dark that is the gift in the right way in the right moment. And so he just starts suggesting to me that perhaps what I or we often think of as the necessary thing to do to get to where we want to be, it is that thing itself that can actually be the gift, not just where we're headed, perhaps not even where we're headed. So I jump into... um, the journey on vacation. I get to speak at family camp and so I'm exploring all of this. So now God gives me the opportunity not only to be thinking about this, but exploring a long obedience in the same direction. The terrible words to the entrepreneur, you know, long obedience, same direction. What is this? And I start exploring the scriptures and something begins to emerge that becomes an extraordinary curiosity, a wondering, a sudden realization that perhaps, perhaps we in our American Western culture are missing the most profound part of where we can find God and know God because we are missing this reality. Eugene Peterson says in his book, there are two other words that are given to us in scripture that are not tourist. Tourist is not given to us, by the way. Read the entire Bible, we're never called tourists. Uh, My people, the tourists are following me. Never, but we are called two things, disciples and pilgrims. We're called those two things. And disciple is someone that is dedicated to apprenticing from their master, learning from their master. And a pilgrim, Eugene Peterson says, the definition of pilgrim is someone going somewhere. There's the base definition of a pilgrim. I'm a pilgrim. What does that mean? I'm someone going somewhere. And the pilgrim who follows Jesus is someone going somewhere, going to God By the way to God, and the way is Jesus. That's right. How do we know that? Because Jesus said, I am the way. So look at this now. God has constantly in his word been saying, Pay attention, folks. The way to me is not a means to an end, it is the very part of where I am because I am the way. So when you arrive, I'm there. When you're on the way, I'm there and I'm showing you things on the way and there. The gift is not the arrival. The gift is the entire thing the journey, the showing up, the everything, because the gift isn't any of that. What is the gift? God is the gift. God is the gift. And we are so obsessed with getting to where God is gonna give us what it is he's promised us to have, uh, a better this, a more secure that, a relationship of this or that. God, please, even when we sing that song, let's just be honest, let's just own this together. If you are in a hard place, you're singing that song, I need you, God, to fill in the blank. Calm the storm, set the things right, make it better. I don't know, part the Red Sea, fix it. And God's like, ah, you're missing the point. So I go into the Old Testament and it suddenly dawns on me, huh, so interesting how God unfolded his story in the Old Testament because there were these people that became God's people. Uh, they were born through a process uh, of some people. Uh, Abraham, in particular, a promise was made. And then he has Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And Joseph gets captured by the Egyptians. Not captured. Uh, he, he Kind of captured. But then uh, God uses him and he becomes a leader. And then there's a big famine. And then all the other 11 brothers show up in Egypt. And Joseph's the leader, one of the leaders. And he's like, you'll be safe here. And then they're safe for a lot of years. And they get wives and they make babies and they get get to be a nation lots and lots of people and egypt's like whoa there's a lot of people and they can be very helpful building stuff and then they build stuff and eventually like why have these people be helpful when we can make them do it and egypt ends up enslaving israel and israel begins to become the 12 tribes part of god's people okay so that happens in genesis and in exodus there is a story that unfolds where God is, uh, comes to his people through Moses and says, I'm going to rescue my people from slavery and set them free. And most of you probably know the story in some form. If you don't, it's very simple. God uh, brings Moses in to Pharaoh. There's 10 plagues. uh, And then the people leave after the 10th plague and they get to a a big sea and they're like, oh no, we're gonna die. And this army is coming and God parts the waters and they cross over uh, the sea and then he closes the waters, So they're totally safe. So just think about what they're watching. They're watching this miraculous, extraordinary, powerful, unbelievable thing unfold with God pulling them out of an impossible situation. And then God takes them and he says, I've got a place I'm gonna take you to where we are gonna reside together. And and the place is gonna reflect my goodness, the promised land, milk and honey. It's gonna be a good place for you and you are gonna love it there. And we are gonna be together there. And they, they kind of very quickly go to where they cross over the next river to the promised land. They send some guys in and the guys come back and they're like, the people there are too big. We can't go, it's dangerous. And we experience that story where God then behaves like we often behave as parents, super frustrated with this kid saying a bunch of baloney, at least in our opinion. And we're like, that's it. You don't trust me? You don't believe me? Fine, you're grounded for seven years. Right. You've never done that. I know. But, uh, you know, on occasion, I find myself in that position this morning on my way to church. And so um, uh, so, so, we see God and we experience this as, a, as an immediate punitive reality. Right. You know what? Since you don't believe me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you around in a desert for 40 years so you all die out. And then I'll take your kids in there. Ha! Let's just be honest. That's how we experience it. And then we look at the poor people like, they just walk around in the desert and they're like, oh my gosh, I wish we'd said that we could go in the land. That would have been so much better. Then we would have had the promise and we would have been happy, but instead we just stuck in the desert. Except, except that that's not how it unfolds at all. If you read the story and watch, because what God really describes to them as they come out is like kind of what Jesus said in the boat. Man, you, have, you still don't get it. You still have no faith. And I, mean, I just, just opened the sea up, did a bunch of plagues. I could have wiped out all of those people by blinking. And you're afraid, like you still don't get who you're with. You still don't get it. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna spend some time together and you're gonna learn who you're with. So that you know, so by the time your kids go to a place that is just a place, it's not the gift. I'm the gift. So we're going to hang out here until you all start going, oh my gosh, I'm the gift. And so, how does he do that? Think about the desert. Just watch this for a second. What happens in that desert? Exodus happens, Leviticus happens, Numbers happens, Deuteronomy happens. You know what those books are? Genesis and those four. It is the entire revelation of how God functions, what righteousness is, the law, the sacrificial system, the prophecies, the declarations of the coming Messiah. It's all in those first 5 books, and the rest of the Old Testament just keeps expanding on it and expanding on it. God shows himself to his people in that desert more profoundly than he shows himself to the people in the promised land. He exists with them as a pillar of uh, of fire at night and a cloud by day. When they're hungry, he feeds them. When they're thirsty, he gives them water. They wake up in the morning to God's presence before them and they go to bed at night with his presence before them. They are never without God profoundly, visibly, clearly right there. And he is never ceasing showing them more stuff. That's where the mountain happens and the, and the, the law comes and the, and the miracles happen and the, everything. You read those five books and you're like, what would we do without these? We'd have, we'd have nothing foundational. And God's like, all that happened where? In the desert on the road to the promised land. You might remember Brady a couple of weeks ago saying when Moses, when God said to Moses, listen, here's how it's gonna roll. I'm gonna go prep the promised land with an angel and then I'm gonna send you guys because I might kill you otherwise because you're behaving like little dude. And, and, and so I'm gonna send you off and then you guys go and enjoy the promised land. And what did Moses say? Uh, are you coming? No, no. Well, then I don't wanna go because the, the promised land is great, but that's not the gift. You're the gift. So if you're in the, if you stay in the desert, I'm happy just to be right here. See what God was beginning to unfold throughout the entirety of the story of scripture is this. If you humans, my people, my children who know Jesus could only just realize that the gift is not what I'm producing for you, giving to you, uh, helping you get to, saving you from, changing for you. That me being with you is the gift. And so now, wherever you find yourself in the desert or in the promised land, becomes an irrelevancy to the idea that you are with the gift. Can you know God in the promised land in profound and wondrous ways? You're like, is it a trick? I don't think you can. Is this one of those like hard times make us know God better? Actually, this is the point of me saying this because that is not necessarily a truth. We can know God equally beautiful in prosperity and wonder and good times as we can in the deserts. The trouble is we keep looking down at where we're at and then determining if this is an endurance race that we have to get through to get to the promised land where we can finally know that God has been good to us or whether this is the promised land and we're just happy he gave us something shiny. And God's like, Neither of those are my way. My way is this that stop looking down at where you're at and wherever you're at. Are you in a desert right now? Are you in a promised land right now? Are you in between right now? Ask this question Where is He? Where is He? Because I promise you, He is where? Right here. And if you keep looking down at where you're at and going, oh no, it's a long obedience in the same direction. All right, means to an end, means to an end. Get to where, I just need a mango, just need a mango. You will miss looking up and seeing before you the cloud and the fire and the manna and the water and the provision and the declaration and the revelation and the law and the wonder and the beauty and the things he's showing you. You miss all of that because you're so stuck on enduring the desert. The desert is not terrible. The promised land is not wonderful. They are just places. But if God is with us, then that is the gift. So I'm, and it's, it's a big deal. But you, you might say, did you like make this up? Because it kind of sounds a little new about the desert. I think, I still think he was mad. Like, well, there's, there's some consequence there, but his purpose was actually to show but those who have their eyes fixed on him and not where they are, are the ones that know the true beauty of life. That the true life we are looking for as followers of Jesus is found not in the extraordinary high points, though some of it is there. They're not bad. Conferences and churches are not bad, but they are found in the in-between spaces as profoundly, perhaps more profoundly, because that's where we spend the majority of our time. Listen to this. The book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes this about those times. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, he's writing about men and women who are living by faith. So what he's saying is, do you wanna know followers of Jesus what it means that we are living on planet earth by faith? Do you wanna know what that means? Like, that's the big question. Okay, what, how, what, what does it mean that I'm, that I'm like with you? Where do I need to get to? How do I have you change the things I need you to change? What does this mean? He's like, okay, let's talk about that. Hebrews chapter 11, and the chapter starts with, this is faith. And then he lists out all these people that lived that way. That faith is not living by what I see right here and by, what, and by what I want or need right here. It is by what I know that I have not yet seen because he has shown me. When I live here, instead of living here, that changes everything. And then he says, look, look at all these people. And after he's listed out a bunch of people in verse uh, 13, of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, he says, all these people I just mentioned that lived by faith died not having received the things promised. That was not what you were hoping to hear, was it? Like, hold, hold, hold on, t- time out. Like, did you read that wrong? All these people that lived by faith did not get the promise. So I, I, I did everything with the tree and I, I didn't get the mangoes. Yeah, pretty much. So you're like, okay, Renault. now you're confusing me. Wait, wait. He's talking about the promise that they had of the coming Messiah to set up his throne on planet Earth and set everything right. So they're like, he's coming any minute now. He's coming any minute now. And they live by faith and they live by faith. But he didn't show up and then they died. And they're like, what? But what he's saying is that they didn't live like that. Like, come on, where is it? When they died, not having seen the promise here, they Greeted it only from afar. But then he says this they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, pilgrims, pilgrims. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a different homeland if they had been thinking about where they had come from, where they live. God, can you do this? Can you make this? Right? I got to get there. If I do these things, will you do these things? If I if I do this, will I mature? If I obey, will I? Ex- if they thought like that, they would have things here. But look at this. They would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one where God is. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a place where he is. What the author of Hebrews is saying is the men and women that lived by faith were men and women that started realizing that nothing here is the gift. Not a circumstance, not a relationship, not a place, not a destination, not a promised land, not a desert. Those are just consequential realities of living during this pilgrimage we're on that we're heading somewhere. And where are we heading? To God and by what? The way and who is the way? Jesus. And then he says this, I closed the Bible. I shouldn't have, I'm still reading. Oh, look, it opened the perfect page. It's a sign. No, it was just lucky. Okay, so look at this. Look at what he says here. Same chapter, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you about Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So what is he saying? Does that sound like the promised land to you? It does to me. I'm like, wow. I mean, they live by faith. And what they needed showed up. What they needed to conquer was there. They quenched lions and fires and resurrections from the dead. Miracles. And we're like, yes, I, that's incredible. The promised land. God is so good. And then he writes the next sentence. Others suffered. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go back as it gets worse. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawed in two they were killed by the sword they went about in sheepskins and goatskins destitute afflicted and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth what he's saying about these folks that live by faith is some of them experienced on this planet some of the promised land some of them experienced on this planet some of the desert which had the more profound experience of god neither which which of those environments was the one we should be after neither because he's saying the point was god was in both and god revealed in both and god showed both it's not that hey the hard life gets you a better view of god no The, the good life gets you a better view of god no if you're obsessed with either of those lives you're missing what the real gift is And that is that God is with you. So wait now. In this beautiful book of Hebrews, chapter 12, he writes this. He finishes that chapter out. And then he writes this. Therefore, you all, me, you, us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, all the people that live by faith in beauty and brutality, promised land and deserts. Let us also lay aside everything that hinders or the weight and the sin that clings so closely or entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what it's saying. Since you now know that the way is Jesus, the gift is God and whether you are on the way in the quiet endurance or arriving at a high point on the mountain, there he is still the gift. There he is still showing himself. So which is the one we're after? Neither, it's both. We conclude this, pay close attention now. The long obedience in the same direction is not the means to the end. It's not the burden to the maturity. It's not the duty that we've been given since we follow Jesus. Please obey, because you know, you're a follower of Jesus now. It is part of the gift that he gives us in the knowing of him. The long obedience in the same direction is where we find the gift that is God. It is not our burden. It is our privilege. And we are not obeying so that we can prove something to him or get something from him. We are on the long obedience because there he is. There he is. Last week, if you were here, we talked about the table that God invites us to come feast with him at. What a joy it is that he performs a miracle on us, makes us worthy because we are not worthy. And then in his making us worthy, invites us to his table and keeps us worthy. The long obedience in the same direction like with the fruit trees, is sometimes thought of as that thing we do to get to the table. If I do the long obedience in the same direction, I will have a seat at the table to feast with Jesus. That is my reward, the promised land. What God is showing us in scripture Is that the long obedience in the same direction, the ordinary mundane disciplines of the faith, the regularity of following Jesus every day, the memorizing of scripture, the engaging in the studying of the word, the long, tedious, boring, fertilizing of 50 things around the fruit tree is part of the feasting. It is not the means to it. We have forgotten ourselves because we are Westerners engaged in a Western culture that says, find the next amazing moment where God will transform you and endure the in-between. Find the sailboat where you spearfish and endure the in-between. And God whispers and says, that is not my way. It is in the in-betweens that the life you want waits to be found. Don't endure that. Seek it out. Enjoy the adventures, the conferences, the high points. But they are not the gift. I, God, am the gift. And I am found along the long way of obedience in the same direction. May we become a people that become far more excited about the boring, mundane obedience in the same direction because it's neither boring nor mundane because there resides the one who is our gift waiting to be seen in ways we've never imagined possible because we're too busy looking down at where we are instead of looking up to where he is with us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your extraordinary and wondrous, beautiful gift. You that you are with us in the desert. You are with us in the storms. You are with us in the promised land. You are with us when we are quenching the flames and closing the mouths of lions and conquering the Goliaths around us. And you are with us when we are chained and beaten down and stuck. Help us become a people that starts slowly realizing that what makes this journey on this planet an extraordinary one is not a journey that, ends up with more high points and less in-between spaces, but actually one where in the in-between spaces we are more perceptive to the cloud that sits before us by day and the fire that sits before us by night. The manner that comes when we are in need, the water available when we are thirsty, the revelation you show us on the mountains in the desert so that we would know you and trust you and see you and be safe with you and slowly start realizing that the promised land, the deserts, it's all the same, just places in which you can be found. Help us fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the way, and enjoy the way instead of enduring it so that in it, we might begin to realize that persevering on this race is what gives us the vision of who you are and the joy that was set before you and enduring the cross so that we might remember when we grow weary and tired that you endured all this to show us yourself and we are now with you so we can endure all this because in the enduring we know you more we see you more we have you more and you are what we want take our eyes off the promised land and fix them on you And show us the way to walk quietly, diligently, in the long obedience, in the same direction. In Jesus' name.